The following sermon, entitled The Son of God Our Lord, was preached on the morning of November 27, 2022, at Hope Protestant Reformed Church in Redlands, California. If you enjoy listening to our sermons, we encourage you to come worship with us. For more information on upcoming service times and Bible study opportunities, please visit our website at hopeprc.org. Let's open God's Word this morning to 1 John 4, the first epistle of John chapter 4. We will read the whole of the chapter and do so in connection with Lord's Day 13 of the Heidelberg Catechism, which explains to us the meaning and significance of the names Only Begotten Son and Lord. 1 John 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore they speak of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we that hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and His love is perfected in us. Hereby know we that we dwell in Him, and He in us, because He hath given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in Him, and He in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and He that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in Him. Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the Day of judgment, because as He is, so are we in the, this world. There is no fear in love, because, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love Him because He first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, 
that he who loveth God love his brother also. Thus far we read God's Word. It's on the basis of this passage and many others that we have the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 13. Lord's Day 13. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God since we are also the children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, but we are children adopted of God by grace for His sake. Wherefore callest thou Him our Lord? Because He hath redeemed us, both body and soul, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with His precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us His own property." As a congregation, we are in the midst of the Heidelberg Catechism's explanation of the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed being the summary of the main points of the Christian faith. And the second article of the Apostles' Creed is that we believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. And the Catechism devotes three Lord's Days to explaining that second article. We have thus far considered the first two of those three Lord's Days. The first treats the name Jesus. The second treats the name Christ. And there we spent some time unpacking the entire meaning and significance of that name. And now we come to the third Lord's Day which treats the last two names, Only Begotten Son and Lord. All of this as a part of the Catechism's section on Christology, the doctrine of Christ. That's an overview of where we are at. But now in coming to these third and fourth names that are a part of the Apostles' Creed, it's that third name that perhaps gives us pause. Only begotten Son. And that name might give us pause because if we remember what we have already treated in the Heidelberg Catechism, then we are mindful of the fact that we too are the sons of God. That was what the Catechism taught us in Lord's Day 9, for example, where we considered God as our Father. And as a part of that Lord's Day, we saw that not only is the Father of Jesus Christ and of creation, but He's also our Father and that He's adopted us as His children. That's certainly the teaching of Scripture. That's the teaching of this book of the Bible from which we read 1 John chapter 3. If we back up one chapter, we read in 1 John 3 verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. So we are clearly the sons of God and yet This Lord's Day is speaking of an only Son. And we wonder, well, how can these two truths go together? Is there a contradiction here? And that's really the question being asked in question 33. Question 33 asks, why is Christ called the only begotten Son since we are also the children of God? And the answer is, is helpful and then it explains to us, well, the key is that God has two different kinds 
of sons. Two different types of children because it goes on to say because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God, but we are children adopted of God by grace for His sake. That is, our God has one natural, eternal, begotten Son and He has many adopted children. And we see the difference when we focus in on the meaning, the significance of that name, the only begotten Son, while at the same time seeing how because He is the only begotten Son, He is also our Lord. And it's with that in mind that we look at this Lord's Day this morning. Using as our theme, the Son of God, our Lord. The Son of God, our Lord. First, we will look at God's unique Son, focusing on the name only begotten Son. Second, we will look at our redeeming Lord, which will focus on the name Lord. And the second answer, question and answer of the Lord's Day. And then finally, our believing response. So the Son of God, our Lord. First, God's unique Son. Second, our redeeming Lord. And third, our believing response. Jesus Christ is God's unique Son because He is the only begotten Son. That Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son is the clear testimony of sacred Scripture. It's evident from the chapter that we read. 1 John 4, verse 9 tells us, "...in this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son." There's that name. And John will use that name multiple times with reference to Jesus Christ. He uses this name four times in his Gospel account, twice in chapter 1, twice in chapter 3. And importantly, this name is being applied to the man, Jesus Christ. And that's important to say because what we are teaching here is something more, something distinct from the fact that within the Trinity, well, the Father begets the Son. That is indeed true, and that's something that belongs to Lord's Day 8, which treats the doctrine of the Trinity, that within the Trinity, each of the three persons has his own distinct personal properties, and the personal property of the Son is that He is begotten of the Father. That's all true. But that's not what's in focus here. What's in focus here is that the man Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son. And we can say that because of the language of Scripture. For example, this passage that we read, 1 John 4, verse 9, says, and this was manifested the love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son. We're talking about the One who was sent of the Father. And the One sent of the Father is the man, Jesus Christ. And this is also clear from John 1, verse 14, where the Apostle John uses this same name and applies it to the Word made flesh. We're talking about the man, Jesus Christ. He is the only begotten Son of God. But now, what does this name mean? What is the significance of this name? Well, to begin, it's worth noting the, the accuracy of the translation that we have in the King James Version. Because this term, this name, only begotten Son, comes from a Greek word that's really just one word, and it's a familiar one, so maybe you've heard of it. It's the term monogenes. 
monogenes, and the King James rendering is good because mono means only and genes means to beget in the sense of a father begetting a child. And now for this name to be applied to our Savior Jesus Christ is to teach us about His origin. And His origin is the very being of God. He is begotten of the substance of God and therefore He shares the same nature as God and thus He is God. For example, when an earthly father begets a son, that son shares in the same nature. He has a human nature just like his father and therefore that son is likewise a human being. He's a a man. Well, the same truth applies to God's begotten Son in that the Father begets the Son and therefore the Son shares the same nature as God Himself and therefore He is God. So that the, the main truth that this name teaches us about our God is that about our Savior is that He is God. And this is... And this name and the meaning of it has been important in the history of the church. For when the church had to defend and to develop the deity of our Savior Jesus Christ, they did so in part by appealing to this name. For the early church recognized on the basis of Scripture that Jesus Christ is indeed divine. He is God. For Scripture speaks of Him that way in John 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word is clearly Jesus Christ. And what is more, Scripture tells us He performs divine work, such as the work of creation. John 1, verse 3, all things were made by Him. But yet, in spite of that clarity, there were some in the early church who denied that Jesus Christ is indeed God. Yes, they would speak of Him as the Son of God, but they took that name Son of God and they stripped it of all of its meaning, of all of its significance, so that they were really just saying that this One who is the Son of God, that just means He's he's like God. He's close to God, but it doesn't mean He's actually God in His being. That was the error of some in the early church. And the The Orthodox in the church rose up and defended the truth of the deity of our Savior. And they did so in part by pointing to this name. He is the only begotten Son of God. That means He shares the same nature as God and therefore He is God Himself. That this name was indeed a part of how the early church defended this truth about our Savior, is evident from our creeds. For example, in the Nicene Creed, which is the outstanding creed that defends the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ, the fact that He is God, there's a a reference right at the outset of that creed to this name. The Nicene Creed says that we believe in God, the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, 
not made being of one essence with the Father. This creed is defending the truth that Jesus Christ is God, especially in that language that He is of one essence of the Father. He is not just like God or close to God, but He is God. He's of one essence with the Father. And the proof for that, He's the only begotten Son of God. So that's the truth that we see when we look at this name. And this is what makes Him unique. Now the Heidelberg Catechism is a help to us in that it gives further explanation of the meaning of this name and thus the uniqueness of God's Son, Jesus Christ. And it does so by giving us two terms that describe our Savior in relation to His Father that makes Him unique. And that's question answer 33. Why is Christ called the only begotten Son of God since we are also the children of God? Because Christ alone is the eternal and natural Son of God. First, He is the eternal Son of God. And that's true because as to His person, He is the second person of the Trinity. And as the second person of the Trinity, He's the one who came down into this world, was born of a woman, took to Himself a true human nature so that Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. And that means when Jesus Christ was born in that manger just outside of Bethlehem, that was not the beginning of His existence. For He's existed from all eternity because as to His person and His divine nature, He is Himself God. And so He is the eternal Son of our God. And that comes out too when we look at this language in 1 John chapter 4. There we read, and this was manifested love of God toward us because that God sent His only begotten Son into this world. It does not read that He was made a Son, but that God sent a Son. And so while it's true that the birth of Jesus Christ was the beginning of His humanity, it was not the beginning of His person. And again, this makes Him unique. Because we all have a beginning to our existence. And what is more, there was a point in time at which we became God's children when we were adopted into His family. In contrast, Jesus Christ always has been and always will be the Son of God. He is the eternal Son of God. Second, He's also the natural Son of God. And in a way, we've already explained what we mean when we say that He's the natural Son of God and that He shares the same essence, the same being, the same substance as God Himself. He is God. That makes Him the the natural Son. But now we can elaborate on that and say that that means everything we can say about God with regard to His being and how that applies to the Father. Well, that means it applies just as equally to the Son. So just as we can say that God is holy, righteous, gracious, merciful, omnipresent, omnipotent, whatever you attribute you might come up with, we can say that applies to His Son. 
And so He's the natural Son. And this makes Him unique. Because this means He's inherently a member of the family. We are brought into the family from outside. He's inherently God's Son because He is His natural Son. All of that is some pretty deep theology when you stop and try to think about it. But we go through this theology not just for the sake of being theologically astute and theologically orthodox, but because there's significance to all of this. There's important application that arises out of the truth that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son and there are Three points of significance that I call your attention to as the second half of this first point. First, the significance of all this is that this magnifies the love of our God towards us His people. And we say that in light of 1 John 4, verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us because God sent His only begotten Son into the world. This magnifies God's love because this name, only begotten Son, highlights just how dear, just how precious the Son is to the Father. That comes out, for example, in John 1, verse 18. John 1, verse 18 says, No man has seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. That expression that He is in the bosom of the Father is indicating that there is the closest possible relationship and connection between the Father and the Son. It's indicating that the Son is the object of God's eternal love. The Father cherishes the Son exactly because He is His only begotten Son. And this closeness, this value also comes out when we look at the other passages of Scripture that take this term, only begotten, and apply it to someone other than Jesus Christ. This term, monogenes, is used nine times in Scripture. Five with reference to Christ. Three of the other four are all used in the book of Luke. And in all three cases, it's some parent coming to Jesus Christ to plead with the Savior that Jesus Christ would heal his or her sick child. And the plea is that this is my only begotten child. He or she is the only one I have. And now certainly, no parent here, no matter how many children they have, would ever think, well, it's okay if I lose one of ten children because I have another nine. No, no parent here thinks that. But yet, there is something to the fact that if a parent only has one child, that that child is that which is most dear, most precious to that parent, to that father, or to that mother. And that's what this name is bringing out so that when it's applied to Jesus Christ, and that He is the only begotten Son of God, the natural and the eternal Son of God. It's emphasizing this is the one whom 
the Father loves. The One in whom the Father delights. He's precious. He's dear to the Father. And thus, how truly astonishing it is that He gave Him to us and for us. He did not give all the riches of heaven and earth to save us. He did not give a whole host of angels to be destroyed for our salvation, but He gave His only begotten Son. And He gave Him not just to be born of a woman and to suffer all of His life long, but He gave Him to die. He sent Him into this world so that He might be crucified at Calvary. And when we stop and consider what really whom the Father gave, then we recognize and we understand why 1 John 4, verse 9 says what it does. In this was manifested the love of God toward us. It connects the giving of the only begotten Son to God's love. And this is not the only Scripture passage that does this. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Child of God, do you know this love of the Father for you? Or have you begun to doubt it? Perhaps due to the circumstances of your life in which God has withheld certain things from you or taken something that you did have away from you. Something that was dear. Something that was precious to you. And in light of that, have you begun to think, well, maybe He does not really love me all that much because if He did love me, surely He would give me this or that or He would never have taken away the thing that He did. Congregation, we are not to judge the love of the Father by the circumstances of our life. We are not to make conclusions about His love based on what He gives us or takes away from us in this life, but we judge His love by looking at Jesus Christ. In this was manifested the love of God towards us. Here's how He shows. Here's how He demonstrates His love. He gave that which was most precious. The One who is most dear to Him. His only begotten Son, child of God. He loves you. He does. And if you doubt it, look to Christ. Because in the giving of the only begotten Son, God's love is magnified. That first is the significance. Second, the significance of this name and the meaning of it is that it points us to the glory 
of our Savior. The glory of our Savior. We say that in light of John 1, verse 14. What does John say there? He says, we beheld His glory. Which glory? The glory as of the only begotten of the Father. It's telling us there's a unique glory that applies to this Son, the natural and eternal Son. And we could say that without in any way detracting from our privileged position as His adopted children. For we do indeed have a privileged position because as those who've been adopted into the family, we are really given to share in the honor of our elder brother. We are made partakers of all the blessings of salvation that He earned. We are made co-heirs of an everlasting inheritance. And what is more, as God's adopted children, the way He treats us as adopted children is no different than the way He treats His only begotten Son. That is, it's not the case that, well, the Father's heart is filled with love for His only begotten Son and He's sort of just lukewarm towards His adopted children. Not so. But He loves us with the same everlasting and perfect love that He has for the Son. But while all of that's true, that we do occupy a privileged position, nevertheless, there is a unique glory to the only begotten Son that's reserved for Him. For He alone is light of light and true God of true God. He's the one who's lifted up, who's raised, who's exalted above all. He's glorious. And therefore, He is to be worshipped. Even as Hebrews 1, verse 6 implies when it says, when He bringeth in the first begotten into the world, He saith, let all the angels of God worship Him. As the only begotten Son, He is to be served. He's to be adored. He's to be reverenced. And may God work that in our hearts toward Him. So the meaning and significance of this name, the application is that it magnifies God's love for us. Second, it reminds us of the unique glory of our Savior Jesus Christ. And third, the significance is that this is our salvation. Because if Jesus Christ were a mere man, if He was not in fact the only begotten Son sent into this world to be born of a woman, then we would have no salvation. But instead, we would still be left with the impossible task of trying to climb our way back toward heaven. We'd be left with trying to make satisfaction for our own sins, either by ourselves or by looking to some other creature. And as the Heidelberg Catechism taught us, that's impossible. We ourselves cannot make satisfaction. There's no other mere creature who can do it for us. The only way we can be saved is if God Himself comes down, clothes Himself in our humanity, and makes satisfaction for us. And thus, praise be to God that this Jesus Christ that we read about on the pages 
of sacred Scripture, the one presented to us in the four Gospel accounts, is not a mere man. Nor is He one who became the Son of God at a certain point of time. But He is the eternal and natural Son of God, which is to say He is God Himself. And thus able to save us from all of our sins. This is our salvation, beloved. Knowing that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son of God. But now there's another name that the Scriptures and thus the Catechism give to Him. And that's the name Lord. We've considered the fact that He is our only be- He is the only begotten Son. And that name really teaches us about the relationship our Savior has to the Father. But now we're given the name Lord in addition to that. And this name teaches us more about His relationship to us. Jesus Christ is Lord. And certainly, He is Lord over everything. Exactly because He is the only begotten Son of God. Because God is the Supreme King. The Sovereign Lord who reigns over all. And if the Supreme King is going to have an only begotten Son, well, surely that only begotten Son is likewise going to be set as ruler over all. He's going to be made King of kings and Lord of lords. And indeed, that's true of Jesus Christ. For as the Son of God, He is Lord over the whole creation. After all, He was there in the beginning, creating all things. He is the Word whereby God made all things, so that nothing was made without Him. And thus, He's Lord of all. He's also Lord of all because... He's our ascended Lord. That is, after He came into this world, finished the work God gave Him to do, He arose again from the dead, but then ascended up into heaven and sat down at God's right hand. And thus, He was crowned as King. He's seated there as Lord. Lord of heaven and earth. That's a part of His exaltation. But yet, Though He is Lord because He's the only begotten Son. Though He's Lord because He's the Creator. Though He's Lord because He is the Ascended One sitting at God's right hand. None of those things are what is in view here when the Heidelberg Catechism takes up the meaning of this name Lord. But instead, it focuses in on a different reason. A different way really in which He is our Lord, and that's because He redeemed us. Question answer 34. Wherefore callest thou Him our Lord? And it does not go into, well, because He created all things or because He sat down at God's right hand. We'll get to that in a coming Lord's Day. But why is He called our Lord? The answer, because He hath redeemed us. Both soul and body from all our sins not with gold or silver, but with His precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us His own property. He redeemed us. And this is a familiar way in which the New Testament Scriptures speak of His saving work. To redeem someone 
is to set them free from slavery, from bondage. It's to liberate them. And Christ has so redeemed us. And the Catechism teaches us four important truths about that redemption. First, the Catechism reminds us from what, from whom, we've been redeemed, namely from sin and from the power of the devil. The Catechism says, because He hath redeemed us, both soul and body, from all our sins, and then a little ways later, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil. He's delivered us from sin and the power of the devil. And this was necessary because of the fall of Adam into sin. When Adam fell into sin, a part of God's punishment was that God gave mankind over to the devil. He put him under the power of the devil. And notice, God Himself is the one doing this. It's not as though by tempting Eve and getting her to eat that forbidden fruit and then getting Adam to do the same that the devil somehow wrestled control of mankind away from God, took man out of God's hands. That's not the idea. But God Himself remains in control. But as a part of the punishment, He takes man and gives him over to the devil. And that was true not just of Adam, but all of Adam's posterity. So that just as any Israelite who was born in Egypt before the Exodus happened, was born into slavery, so too every descendant of Adam was born into a spiritual slavery. So that we were all in bondage under the power of the devil. And that's really what we mean when in Reformed theology we speak of the the bondage of the will. Our wills were bound. They were enslaved to sin. So that the only thing we would desire, the only thing we would ever choose in and of ourselves would be to sin. Satan was our cruel taskmaster. And what a miserable position to be in. Even as it was misery for the children of Israel to be under, to be slaves to the people of Egypt. But our Lord has redeemed us from that. So we've considered from what He's redeemed us. And that brings us to the, the second thing we need to see is how He went about doing this. And He's redeemed us by paying the ransom. And that's really the idea of redeeming someone. Redeeming is a a very specific way of delivering someone. And it's delivering someone from slavery, from bondage, by making the necessary payment. By purchasing that person. And the, the purchase price is what you call a ransom. There's a reason you read of that term again and again in Scripture. A a ransom. And the key is when we hear that term ransom, we need immediately to connect that to the truth of redemption so that if the passage does not explicitly mention our redemption, we still recognize it's talking about that because a ransom is the price paid in order to redeem someone. And note well, this price 
does not go to the devil, but it goes to God. For remember, He's the one who gave us over to the devil. It's not that the devil truly owns us, but it's that God punished mankind by giving Him over to the devil. And therefore, if a ransom is going to be paid to redeem us, it's not paid to the devil, but it's paid to Jehovah God. And Jesus Christ did indeed pay the ransom. And that ransom was nothing less than His precious blood. The Catechism says, because He hath redeemed us, both soul and body, from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with His precious blood. And the Catechism is so clearly drawing directly from Scripture. The Catechism is a faithful summary of what Scripture teaches us. For Scripture tells us in 1 Peter 1, verses 18 and 19, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Oh, how costly was our redemption. For God did not give all the gold and the silver in the world. But Jesus Christ gave His blood, which is to say His life. For He was crucified at Calvary. His blood was shed as the ransom price. And understand, this is the blood of God Himself then. According to His human nature. No other blood will do. Not the blood of bulls. Not the blood of goats. Not the blood of some man. But this is the blood of God Himself. And that's what makes it valuable. That's what makes it a ransom price. That's what makes it precious. And thus acceptable to God as the price to liberate us. So how did He redeem us? By paying the ransom that is by giving his, by paying with His precious blood. And in this, He has fully redeemed us. And that's the third truth that the Catechism reminds us of. The extent of our redemption. It's a full, it's a, a complete redemption for the Catechism. Again, drawing from Scripture, says that He hath redeemed us both soul and body. And here the passage that's helpful is 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20. For ye are bought with a price. Ah, we're talking about redemption. If we're talking about being bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, used as a synonym for soul, which are God's. And now notice the logic here. It's saying, You've been bought with a price and therefore glorify God both in your body and your soul because they both belong to God. And the clear implication is that He purchased both parts. He purchased us both body and soul, which is to say this is a a full, a a complete redemption. He does not just liberate our bodies, but then leave our souls to languish. Nor is it the case that He sets free the soul, but he, He fails to pay the ransom for the body. But He's redeemed us both body and soul. So that every part of me is now 
set free from that tyranny, from that bondage, from that slavery that we were in. And the result of this is that we are His possession. And that's the fourth truth. Catechism teaches us the doctrine of redemption. It reminds us that we are redeemed from sin and the power of the devil. It reminds us how we are redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. It teaches us the extent to which we've been redeemed, both body and soul. It's a complete, a full redemption And fourth, the result of all this is that we now belong to our Savior Jesus Christ. Because He hath redeemed us both soul and body from all our sins, not with gold or silver, but with His precious blood, and hath delivered us from all the power of the devil, and thus hath made us His own property. We belong to Him. That is, when Jesus Christ sets us free, it's not as though He says, okay, I've taken you out of the power of the devil and now you are somehow independent. You're this autonomous being. It's not as though He says, okay, go ahead, do whatever you want by yourself now. But instead, He redeems us unto Himself. He makes us His possession so that He is our proprietor and we are His property. That means we're really servants of Jesus Christ. Slaves of Jesus Christ in the, the good sense of the word. This is something the Apostle Paul was acutely aware of. In multiple of his epistles to different churches, he introduces himself as the servant of the Lord. That is, the slave of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm under Him. I belong to Him. And therefore, I am to serve this Lord. But now the good news of the Gospel is that we are more to God than His servants, His slaves. Because we're really His children. And that too is a part of our redemption. And that connects us back to the fact that we too are the sons of God, the children of God, and that we've been adopted of God by grace for the sake of Jesus Christ. We've been adopted as those whom He's redeemed. That's Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under law, to redeem them that were under the law. And now notice the result of this redeeming. That we might receive the adoption of sons. So that the passage connects our redemption to our our adoption. God does not merely bring us out of the dominion of the devil, but He brings us into His family. So that He is not just our God, but He's our Father. And Jesus Christ is not just our Lord, but He's our elder brother. We are not just a piece of property to Him, but we are His sons and His daughters. And as such, He cares for us. He gives us all that we need physically and spiritually. 
He sends us the blessings of salvation so that we who had absolutely nothing, who were completely miserable, have now been given everything. We've gone from spiritual rags to spiritual riches. Because our Savior has redeemed us. The question becomes for us then, how shall we respond? What is the believing response to this glorious truth? The believing response is first that we must believe and confess that Jesus Christ is the only begotten Son, our Lord. And the importance of believing in Christ and confessing this truth about Him cannot be overstated. And it cannot be overstated in light of what we read in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verses 22 and the beginning of 23, we read this, Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ? He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. Whosoever denieth the Son... The same hath not the Father. To deny that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that He is God, is to be a liar and an antichrist. That is, one opposed to God. And thus, to deny Jesus Christ is to stand condemned before God, even as John 3, verse 18 teaches us, He that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Unless the clear calling is rather than denying this, we are to believe this truth. Believe this truth even as John 3, verse 16 calls us to do. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him we're to believe in Him that He is the only begotten Son of God. To, conf- to say, yes, this is true about Him and to confess that before men. That is, not only believe it in our hearts, but to confess it with our mouths. Even as 1 John 4, verse 15 teaches us, teaches us to do. 1 John 4, verse 15, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. God dwelleth in Him and He in God. And the idea there is that when we confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, that's the proof, that's the evidence that God is in us by His Spirit working in our hearts. We're to believe in Him and to confess this about Him. Confess His name among men regardless of what they may think about us, regardless of what they may say about us, because there is an anti-Christian kingdom out there that hates this truth, that wants nothing to do with this truth, and will try to silence those who confess it. But yet, knowing that He is, in fact, the only begotten Son, and that as the Son of God in human flesh, He's redeemed me, I cannot but confess it. Come what may from those who hate this truth. So first, the believing response is to believe and confess this truth concerning Jesus Christ. 
Second, the believing response is to serve Him. Because we now belong to Him. We are His servants. And we are to serve Him as Lord, as the One who has every right, therefore, to tell us how we are to live. To say, this is how you are to walk as Christians. And we're to serve Him with the whole of our being. Because remember, He's redeemed every part of me. Body and soul. And every part of my body so that He's redeemed my hands. And therefore, I am to use my hands to serve my Lord. He's redeemed my mind and so the thoughts that I think and what goes on in my mind is all to be pressed into the service of my Lord. He's redeemed every part of me and therefore, I'm to press the whole of my being into the service of my Lord and do so trusting that His will for me is best. That when He tells me do this or don't do that, that He knows what He's talking about. So that rather than being like the Israelites who are redeemed purchased out of slavery in Egypt, but yet want to go back to Egypt thinking, well, it was really better for us when we were in slavery and in bondage. Let's just go back. Rather than thinking that way, we recognize that the will of my Lord is good. That it's what's best for me. And therefore, I'm going to serve Him. And now we serve Him not just as servants, but ultimately as sons. Which is to say, we serve Him out of love and thankfulness. For you see, there's a difference between a way in which an earthly servant or slave serves their earthly master and the way that sons and daughters serve their father or mother. And that difference comes out, for example, in Romans 8, verse 15. Romans 8, verse 15, For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. So there's a contrast between the spirit of bondage again to fear versus the spirit of adoption. And what it's saying is that our motivation for serving is not that we're still in bondage and thus laboring out of fear. In other words, we do not serve God with a view to avoiding some punishment or having the whip come upon us. It's not fear that drives us that if I mess up here, if I fail to do this, then He's, he's really going to come down on me and let me have it. That's the spirit of bondage. Unto fear. We do not serve Him like the Israelites served their Egyptian taskmasters. But we serve Him as His adopted sons and daughters. As those who know His love for us. And out of thankfulness for that love, we now want to love Him. Is that not what 1 John 4 teaches us? 
here in His love, not that we first loved Him, but that He loved us. And that we love Him because He first loved us. It's knowing His love as our Father. It's knowing the love of our redeeming Lord that's the the motivation for us to then serve Him. Yes, as His servants, but especially as His beloved children. May God grant us the grace to so serve Him in that way. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank Thee for our Savior Jesus Christ, the One who is Thy only begotten Son and our redeeming Lord. Strengthen our faith in Him and help us to know Thy love for us. And thereby kindle in our, in our hearts a desire to serve Thee with the whole of our being. Hear this prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.